Who's buying all the gold? IKEA is in the Eurozone. Sometimes fortune doesn't have a good outlook. How much did you say that drink was for? You haven't played golf until you own a set of these. That and a lot more on Affairs of Affluence, episode number three, for June 12th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, HelpMeMoveOn.com. There is a new real estate agent matchmaking service, and it's called HelpMeMoveOn.com. They will help you with your move by helping you find the right real estate agent to represent you in the sale or purchase of your home anywhere in the U.S. and even in most countries. Hello and welcome to Affairs of Affluence. I'm your host, Carlos Cruz, and we are here to connect you with the finer things in life. This show focuses on the new era of luxury for the sophisticated, affluent connoisseur. We'll talk about the world's premium and luxury products and upscale providers of top luxury services. According to the World Gold Council, total jewelry demand was up 12% year-on-year in Q1 of 2013, driven in the main by Asian markets. Jewelry demand in China was up 19% on the same period last year and stood at a record 185 tons. Demand in both India and the Middle East was up 15% respectively, and in the U.S., demand showed a significant increase, 6% for the first time since 2005. Demand for gold in China and India was also driven by an increase in bar and coin sales, up 22% year-on-year in China and 52% in India. In the U.S., demand for bars and coins was up 43% compared with the same quarter in 2012. Globally, bar investment was up 8% while official coins such as American Eagles and Canadian Maple Leafs were up 18%. Gold held by gold-backed ETFs, which in 2012 accounted for 6% of the world's largest gold demand, fell by 177 tons. A link to the full report will be on our show notes for this episode. WealthX, the ultra-high net worth business development, solutions for global private banks, educational institutions, luxury brands, and nonprofits, has released a list of the top 25 wealthiest individuals in France, Italy, Germany, and Switzerland, otherwise known as the Fig Nations. Total wealth of these individuals stand at over $367 billion. Ingvar Kamprad, founder of IKEA, topped the list with a net worth of $43.1 billion. Kamprad is known as much for his immense wealth as for his parsimony. The only luxury he reportedly allows himself is an occasional helping of caviar. The textiles, apparel, and luxury goods sectors dominates, representing 24% of the industry sectors represented on the list. This is followed by finance, banking, and investments at 16% and food products at 12%. Yachting Magazine has an article about the 136-foot Izar Fortuna, Launched in 2000, she was crowned the fastest yacht in the world, besting 66 knots. It belongs to Key Juan Carlos of Spain, who has always liked fast boats and who has had the pleasure of using Fortuna thanks to the generosity of the business people who paid to build her. Nowadays, though, with Spain's unemployment rate at 27%, he offered to give Spain's government the $27 million motor yacht as a show of solidarity with the people, only to be sidelined by a foundation representing the business people 
who say that if the king will no longer be using Fortuna, they want her back. If you think dropping $30 for your date's drink is expensive, then you better be careful when you enter any of these nightclubs. Drew Donaldson of the OC Executive Magazine covered what the most expensive drinks are. Are you ready for this? You will find the least expensive drink located at Bar Hemingway at the Ritz located in Paris. It is called the Ritz Sidecar and its featured main ingredient is five tenths worth of Ritz Reserve Cognac, which is an ultra rare liquor traced back to 1830. The cost for this indulgence is $515. If you can handle that, then try this. The next time you are in Melbourne, Australia, go visit Club 23. Ask for the Winston. The mix has a shot of 1858 Croissant Cognac Grand Marnier Quintessence, Super H Chartreuse, and you would never guess what the name for Super H Chartreuse is, and an Agnostura Bitters. Once you're handed your drink, go ahead and hand over $12,500. That's right, $12,000. There are a total of five drinks on the list. You can visit our show notes for a link to the full article. Credit Suisse Global Wealth Report was recently released and aims to provide the most reliable and comprehensive data on global household wealth, covering all components of wealth and spanning the entire wealth spectrum. The report subdued economic growth and collapses in equity prices have made the past year a challenging one for wealth creation and preservation. The economic uncertainties of the past year, particularly those affecting Eurozone countries, have cast a large shadow over household wealth. Economic recession in many countries, combined with widespread equity prices declines and relatively subdued housing markets and has also produced the worst environment for wealth creation since the outbreak of the financial crisis. As a consequence, total global household wealth fell by 5.2% to $223 trillion U.S. dollars between mid-2011 and mid-2012, the first annual decline since the financial crisis of 2007-2008. However, prospects are not as gloomy as this result might suggest because the overall drop is attributable to appreciation of the U.S. dollar. Based on constant exchange rates, aggregate global household wealth actually rose by about 1% over the last year. Not an impressive performance compared to recent years, but still better than expected, given the challenging economic environment. The report this year features a detailed review of household debt covering G7 countries since the 1980s and all global countries since the year 2000. The analysis reveals many interesting findings that appear to have gone unnoticed. It also examines the link between household debt and the sovereign debt of countries. The other special topic in 2012 focuses on inherited wealth. It looks into Alia at the degree to which evidence of inheritance varies across wealth levels and over time, and how the share of inheritance and self-made wealth across countries depends on factors such as savings rate, growth rates, and life expectancy. To mark its 50th anniversary, Lamborghini unveiled an outrageous one-off concept called the Egostia. This single-seat car, I said single-seat car, pushes the envelope for Lamborghini's design and engineering team. The single-seat car was designed purely for the hyper-sophisticated person. Looking like a road-going fighter jet, the Egostia is powered by a 5.2-liter V10 that produces 600 horsepower. The single-seat is positioned in the middle of the car. The driver has to use an electronic remote to lift the canopy and then physically remove the steering wheel before sliding down into the seat. Golfing enthusiasts willing to hit the sprawling lawns might want to do away with their old pair of clubs for luxurious proposition. Hanma, a Japanese company, is offering a bag full of the finest collection of golf clubs ever for a whopping price of $75,000. For more information on any of these topics, visit our show notes on affairaffluence.com. Don't forget to let them know you heard about them on the Affairs of Affluence show. 
Before we continue on with our guest, we'd like to thank our sponsor, HelpMeMoveOn.com. There is a new real estate agent matchmaking service, and it's called HelpMeMoveOn.com. It will help you with your move by helping you find the right real estate agent to represent you in the sale or purchase of your home, and if necessary, assist you with your relocation. Moving is a highly stressful time for everybody involved, and making sure you have a smooth transition from one location to another is what HelpMeMoveOn.com does best. That usually starts by finding the right real estate agent. Why sell or buy yourself when you don't have to? Whether you're moving across the street, across town, to a completely different state or country, Help Me Move On can help you with your real estate needs. HelpMeMoveOn.com is proud to be associated with the Global Relocation Network. This network is comprised of nearly 700 independent residential real estate firms in excess of 145,000 sales associates in 35 countries. This allows HelpMeMoveOn.com to offer you relocation services both nationally and internationally and is the most effective way to ensure you receive superior customer service. We have the ability to support a client's real estate needs nearly anywhere in the world. We'll have global reach with high quality professional resources. HelpMeMoveOn.com makes home buying less stressful and selling your home is now easier by going to HelpMeMoveOn.com and filling out the form. You will receive a call from a live person, not a recording, or just an email stating that we received your email and to wait. Someone will call you to evaluate what your needs are. Do you have children with special needs? Are you moving to a super remote location? Do you have very expensive items that have to be handled with care? Or maybe you have your parents or grandparents moving with you and they do not speak English very well and require an agent that speaks your native language. It doesn't matter if you're looking to buy or sell a home that is $80,000 or $5 million. HelpMeMoveOn.com can make sure your agent matches your needs and requirements. HelpMeMoveOn.com will stay with you from beginning to end and even follow up with you after your relocation is completed. HelpMeMoveOn.com is all about ensuring you have a pleasant moving experience. There is no reason for you to deal with all the headaches and hassles of a move. Visit HelpMeMoveOn.com and fill out the form. There's no cost, no obligation to help you find an agent. Let them know you heard us on Affair of Affluence. Go now to HelpMeMoveOn.com. Our guest today is the son to the official watchmaker to the imperial court of Emperor Haile Selassie I of Ethiopia, a direct descendant of King Solomon and Queen Makeda. If that name doesn't ring a bell, you may know her as the Queen of Sheba. Our guest, Vartkes Kanajan, seems to be naturally attached to history. Vartkes is the CEO of one of, if not the oldest diamond company in existence, and has been with Bax and Strauss since 1976. Since then, he is responsible for redirecting this diamond company to become a major player in the international diamond industry. Baxter Strauss was formed in 1789. Just to give you an idea how far back they go, in the United States, George Washington was elected as the first president. Also, the French Revolution began with the fall of Bastille. Varkas, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. How does it feel to be part of something as historical as Baxter Strauss? How did you get started with this company? Well, I loved history at school, and it seemed that when I joined Baxter Strauss, I was continuing this love affair of history. In 1976, I was just graduating from the London School of Economics, and my ambition was to return to Ethiopia to join my father in his 
small business, but an exciting business in Addis Ababa. However, in the years leading up to 1976, there was a minor problem of a military revolution. A Marxist government had come in and had nationalized a large part of private industry as we know it. Uh, so I had to get myself a job. One of the partners in Baxton Strauss was a family friend of my father's. And he asked me whether I'd like to have a go, a career in diamonds. Equipped with an economics degree, I thought maybe this could be fun. And I joined Baxton Strauss in August 1976. So can you give us a little background on what Baxton Strauss specializes in? Uh, I know you may be a diamond and gem company, but what are you in the business of? Well, right now, uh, since 2006, Baxton Strauss, the brand, is really uh, a high-end diamond jewelry watch. We claim to be the meeting of the masters. In 2006, when we formed the partnership with Frank Muller, we understood and appreciated Frank Muller as the master of complications. They have been, perhaps, in the last 20, 25 years, the most accomplished probably the most innovative watchmakers in Switzerland. And we coming in as the world's oldest diamond company, we thought if we join our forces on this project, the meeting of the masters, we can create the ultimate diamond jewelry watch. How did you get the brand to grow? When can you say Baxter Strauss became an international brand? You see, when this whole idea of creating or making Baxton Strauss a high-end diamond jewelry watch brand came to me. I wanted to leverage on the history and heritage of the company. Up until 2006, we were really a business-to-business -business company. We were servicing a large number of diamond users globally. In the consumer market, we were completely unknown. So when we created the, the watch brand, in 2006, we had our job cut out because we suddenly found out that going out to the consumer market, no one had heard of us. So it was very much a case of creating the brand, the image, raising the profile of the company. And I must say, in the last six years, we, we feel, however small we are now, we've done a good job in communicating our message internationally. So that basically goes in with your tagline. Your tagline is Masters of Diamonds since 1789. How does that really tie into the vision of Baxton Strauss? You see, I think diamonds have been and will be and will remain the central focus in Baxton Strauss, whether we're in watches and jewelry, whatever we do in the future, diamonds will be very much the most important DNA of the brand. We attach tremendous importance to our diamond heritage because my feeling is that people don't appreciate the amount of craftsmanship and skill that goes into polishing a diamond. A lot of people imagine that small diamonds that are set on watches or on dials of watches come from rough diamonds but are polished mechanically by some amazing machine, which doesn't exist, by the way. It is still a human being sitting at the wheel, applying the 58 facets manually. And in our case, we use only ideal cut diamonds, which means that all the proportions, all the symmetries have got to be absolutely perfect. So it's a human being sitting at the wheel, working away to produce these diamonds. And I think when we talk of masters of diamonds since 1789, this is my job to communicate this tremendous skill that is inherent in diamonds. Baxenstrasse has been around since the French Revolution. 
it's almost ironic being with a company that has been on its own. Personally, I do not believe that a company can survive for over 200 years without being a revolutionary in its own way. Can you share with us some of the ways Baxter Strauss has been revolutionary? I think you're absolutely right when you say that how can a com company survive it is, if it's not revolutionary? It has to reinvent itself over a period of time. And that has been the strength of Bax and Strauss. In 1789, when they started the business, Mr. Backers was a goldsmith working at his bench, making gold jewelry. His son, who moved to London in 1814, was more ambitious and had workshops in Paris, in London, and in Germany. And he was making high-end Victorian diamond jewelry and uh, distributing this globally. The second half of the 19th century was very interesting because that was when diamonds were discovered in commercial quantities in Southern Africa. And the people behind the discoveries of these diamonds were people like Barney Barnato, Cecil Rhodes, and these were all originally from London. And the Strauss family were obviously very close to the Barnatos and the Cecil Rhodes. And with the discovery of commercial quantities in um, Southern Africa, there was suddenly a need for diamond polishers and diamond distributors. Hence, Bax and Strauss got themselves involved, moved their business away from diamond jewelry manufacturing into polishing diamonds and distributing diamonds globally. Uh, we have some archives in our offices which um, were written towards the end of the 19th century. And these are fascinating because um, they're written by members of Backers and Strauss family who used to travel globally, visiting their clients, selling them diamonds. And imagine at the end of the 19th century how difficult it was to travel, how difficult it was to communicate. It's not like today. And these boys were going to places as far away as Japan, Southeast Asia, covering the whole of the European continent, going to places as exotic as Alexandria and Egypt. So fascinating. And during most of the 20th century, their business was purely diamonds. That's till I came along in 2003 and said, OK, we have this wonderful history and heritage. Why don't we reposition the company? So yet again, revolutionary move, change the direction of the business. And now we have high-end diamond jewelry watches. So throughout the years, how are you able to maintain your creativity? Have you partnered with other organizations? Have you had a meeting of the minds with various masters within your industry? Uh, have you sought wisdom and ideas outside of your industry? I think, again, I can't speak for the previous owners or managers of Baxton Strauss, but we are currently in process of writing a history book, going through all our archives. And you can see reading in between the lines, they living in an international world where they were interacting with traders from different parts of the world, they were seeing different cultures, I think helped them open their, their vision, helped them develop their vision to a much more uh, international, much uh, larger perspective. And equally, I joined the company in 1976. I was trained as a diamant, that means working with diamonds. And yet I brought in a sort of a love and passion of watches, which I had inherited from my father. And there was this burning passion in me that I would like to, to create a high-end uh, watch brand. And I was able to combine these two passions, you know, my work as a diamantaire, my passion in watches, 
uh, and the result was the launch in 2006. So it is very much seeking other cultures, seeking other other views, other visions to 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 create this revolutionary feeling in the company. How can the methods that made Baxter Strauss successful in the diamond trading industry be applied to the watchmaking world? Well, without going into the technical side of things, I think it's what I've just said in, in my previous answer. It's to remain on top of things is to be ahead of ideas, to be creative, to not just feel that because we're in the watch or diamond business, we are therefore limited by the opportunities that lie ahead. The world is a changing place. Technology has changed the world dramatically and will change it even more in the coming five or 10 years. So it's very much Baxter Strauss to, trying to find a place within this brave new world that has been created. Now let's take a sidestep and talk about the luxury market for a minute. How does Baxter Strauss as a whole define the luxury market? I'm going to tell you a little story which might be interesting for your listeners. When I was going to this whole idea of uh, launching the Baxter Strauss brand, I tried to understand what luxury was. And I asked a lot of people and you, you get all sorts of answers. And I was attending a seminar in London, which was organized by Walpole, which is uh, an association of high-end British brands that come together to discuss common interests. And the seminar was very much on this question of luxury. And um, there was a very important speaker who, who got up and he spoke about his business. And someone at the back of the room said, uh, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be here. And the organizers felt very uncomfortable and asked why. And he said, because you don't represent the luxury industry. And the discussion led on, and this gentleman got up and he gave his definition of what luxury is, which has been my guiding light since. And basically it goes that luxury was invented in Europe in the 17th and 18th century by the European kings and monarchs. Normally at that time, they would be the most powerful person in their kingdom or their realm, and they would send for the best craftsmen make furniture or clothes or jewelry or whatever the craftsman would appear in front of the king and the king would commission them to go and make something for him using the best material where price was absolutely not an issue the craftsman had to go and find the best linen the best silk the best gold the best piece of wood to make whatever he was going to make he would then make or craft whatever the king had commissioned him to, and he would bring it to the king who would then enjoy it. He would wear the clothes or wear the jewelry, enjoy the furniture. And then all the aristocrats living around the king would then aspire to live like the king. Hence, I think this is the guiding line of luxury, is a bespoke piece made by the best craftsmen using the best materials. I think, you know, that what was started then remains today. I think someone today, what I call the discerning consumer, the person who, who has tremendous means, will want 
to go and commission or ask someone to make something very special for them. And this is what we encourage at Bax and Strauss when we have customers and we have customers who come in and we discuss with them the different possibilities of diamond setting, the different colors of diamonds that they can use, the different type of horological complications that we can include in the movements. So the resulting piece will be a, a piece unique. It's a special piece made for that particular customer, which you'll be able to enjoy and cherish every time he or she puts that watch on their wrists. It's something special, knowing only you have that piece in this world. So keeping that in mind, can you go a little bit deeper as to how Bax and Strauss defines an incredible timepiece? Well, uh, one of the pieces which I'm very proud of is the Barclay Imperial. Now, this piece started very much, um, uh, it wasn't commissioned, but I suppose I commissioned it myself, is um, I was fascinated by lime-colored diamonds. These are very, very rare. Um, this, these are sort of not yellow, but greenish-yellow diamonds. And I wanted to create this watch with the dial completely set with lime-colored diamonds. And I started collecting, and after two and a half years, I was only able to get sufficient to only cover half of the dial. So I said, okay, I will set this together with white diamonds. And it looked in the end like a chessboard, one lime diamond color and one white one. And this was a major headache in actually repolishing and setting into the dial. Because when you set a dial for watches, you've got to recut every diamond that you have to be able to fit into the into the dial. But when you recut and repolish lime-colored diamonds, the chances are you'll lose the color. Because as you know, everything about a diamond is light entering and refracting from the diamond. And even colored diamonds, you have to protect certain angles so that the colors that are inherent in it can be refracted. So the, my polishers were sitting there repolishing diamonds, not just for size, but also having to take into consideration the sort of added constraint of keeping the color in. So it was a fascinating challenge. But in the end, when the piece was finished and uh, we showed it at our exhibition here, it had just come out of the showroom. We only owned it for two hours because a very uh, astute Japanese um, uh, customer saw it and saw value in it immediately and offered to buy it. So that is a special timepiece, I would say. Uh, if you if you can recall, how many diamonds did you use uh, for that for the facet? I mean, uh, for the dial, there were ninety six diamonds, and that that was basic. That's the total amount because I know you said that they were rare, so you only had enough to cover half of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that that watch was basically a one of a kind, correct? It's one of a kind. Yeah, it's a PS unique. Even if someone asks me to recreate it, it will be different because. You know, the color combinations will be different. Because as you know, each diamond has got its own characteristic and is different in its own way. And aren't they different basically depending on what mine they come from as well? Well, the, it depends. The, the material of a diamond, because you see a diamond was formed in the Earth's crust millions and billions of years ago under very high temperature and high pressure. As we go into various mines, they all have different characteristics. And it's fascinating to see that diamonds coming out of Canada are very similar to diamonds mined in, the, uh, in Yakutia in Russia. 
because they're along the same longitude. They're sort of closer to the North Pole. Therefore, the formation of the Nymans are, 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 are similar to the ones being formed in Southern Africa. Can you also describe your, your N1 diamond jewelry watch for a lady? The, the number one uh, diamond for a lady which uh, we have crafted and we've created is what we call the princess. This is not a limited piece. These we can only make five pieces a month. And these are set with round diamonds, ideal cut diamonds. Um, I mentioned earlier ideal cut diamonds. I will emphasize why we use ideal cut diamonds. You know, there are four characteristics that everyone looks into a diamond. That's the color, the clarity of the diamond, and the carat size. But one of the most important things about a diamond is the cut, is the uh, actual polished polishing of the diamond, is the way the diamond is cut. When a uh, diamond is cut to ideal proportions and ideal symmetry, there's absolutely no compromise in diamond polishing. Because diamond polishing, in a way, is the art of saving as much diamond as possible from the rough piece. Therefore, a lot of co corners are cut. And one of the skills of a diamond polisher is to save as much weight as possible. To the human naked eye, the differences are not that obvious. But an ideal cut diamond has absolutely no compromise. It has to be polished to very specific angles and the proportions have got to be absolutely symmetrical. All the facets have got to be perfectly aligned. And the reason the cut of the diamond is important is because, as I said, it's all about the light, light entering and refracting. So the, the, the watch I created, which is the princess, is taking all these beautiful diamonds and setting them in a bracelet, in a very, very, it's a handmade bracelet where each diamond is set into a socket. There are five moving parts which have been put together to create this socket, and the sockets are held together by a mechanism that, that is manually put together. So much so the flexibility in the bracelet is absolutely fantastic. And then this is set to either a Piccadilly, which is the round shape, or a region, which is the oval-shaped uh, watch, also set with diamonds on the bezel and in the, in the dial. So the princess is, is a beautiful lady's watch. We create this and craft this in rose gold and white gold. As I said, we can only make five of these because it's very, it takes us a lot of time. We, we, we combine technology and craftsmanship to produce these watches. You also created a watch called the Regent Bio Brumel, and I believe he's an iconic figure in men's fashion. Uh, he was responsible for establishing the modern uh, men's suit. This watch celebrates the what we call the first British dandy. Can you tell us how you believe the dandy of the 1800s has its similarities to the dandy of the 21st century? I'll take you back a little bit. We draw tremendous inspiration from the Regency period of London. This is uh, a part, a uh, historical period in London, when King George III was not well, and he could not govern as the king. So his son, also George, became the Prince Regent. In other words, he was technically in charge of running the country. And the Prince Regent was a very interesting character. He loved life. He, he enjoyed good things in life. And he commissioned people like John Nash, who was an architect, to create 
large parts of central London. And for anyone who's visited uh, London, um, a lot of the central part of modern London was actually built in the 1800s, beginning of the 19th century. And John Nash is uh, evident throughout this architecture. And our Regent model, which is the oval-shaped diamond, draws inspiration from that lovely Regent Street, which John Nash created, which was, in terms of architecture, completely revolutionary. Instead of straight lines, you had this sort of uh, circular, symmetric buildings, giving, giving a total flow to, to the building, to the street. And when you look at our oval watches, it, it, it reminds you of that. It's a symmetric Overwatch. Looking at the, that part of history, I was greatly inspired by Bo Brummel. Bo Brummel was also a friend of the Prince Regent, and he used to dress like a dandy. I mean, you know, he was the fashion icon of his period. And um, there's a statue of him on German Street in London, which is where our offices are in London. And walking past this uh, daily, I, I was um, inspired to say, I would like to create a watch to celebrate him. And the resulting Bob Brummel watch is, instead of using gold, we use titanium, and we set diamonds on titanium. We experimented with a two-level dial. One was, uh, which was um, based on a, a blue color, and we set the diamonds for the numerals and then gave it a nice uh, base color to contrast with the blue. So it was a very dandy-like watch. So aside from your one-of-a-kind that you already sold, your number one uh, watch for a lady and your view, can you tell us what new releases you have for 2013 and which one would you say stands out uh, the most to you? Well, what, what we're doing in 2013, in January, we launched the collection under the name of the Renaissance. Renaissance is a French word, means rebirth, but it was first used uh, in the English language in the 16th and 17th century as a period of his history. Our Renaissance collections are harked back to the classic collection of watches. They're extremely slim, uh, the watches are 6.1 millimeters. We use a mechanical hand-winding mechanism in it. And whilst keeping iconic collections of the Regent, the Piccadilly and the Barclay, uh, the Renaissance collection is a very slimline version of those. So you will still feel the flow and the design of the original collection. But for people who want a slimline collection, this, this is what we're offering. I also understand that Baxter Strauss is part of the only watch auction this year. Uh, for our, our listeners who are not familiar with this, this is recognized as the world's first charity watch auction. 38 of the world's leading watch manufacturers, including yourself, Baxter Strauss, will each donate a unique timepiece specifically created for the occasion. I think this year the proceeds will be donated to the Mogan Gascu, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Association. Uh, against muscular dystrophy. Uh, can you share with us this, what this unique timepiece you designed for this special cause? I'll start at the beginning. It was when we created the Victoria Collection. The Victoria Collection draws its inspiration from 
the Victorian jewelry that Paxton Strauss was making in the 19th century. And when Queen Victoria married Prince Albert, um, she, the, the, their marriage was really a love affair. They were so much in love with each other that the whole country celebrated this love. And the jewelry that was being made at the time, there was a lot of interlocking hearts and arrows and every piece of jewelry you'd pick up, there was interlocking hearts. So when our designers saw these um, in the archives, they wanted to create a watch with interlocking hearts, but rather than stopping with two hearts, they went completely round and you've got a, a watch that is uh, interlocking hearts completely circular. And uh, we launched this as the Victoria Collection last year. When I was in the middle of this production of this uh, collection, I was introduced to Blue Heart Campaign. The Blue Heart Campaign was something which the United Nations had launched a few years back. And this was to highlight the heinous crime of human trafficking which is uh, evident everywhere in the world. And I knew very little about this. So I, I made some research and found out that, you know, funds were, were missing to, to help the United Nations fight this. And they had trust, set up a trust fund to collect funds to be able to use to communicate the problems of human trafficking. So we created and crafted the Blue Heart Victoria, the Victoria Blue Heart, and we donate proceeds from this watch to the United Nations Trust Fund to fight human trafficking. Now, encouraged by that, I came across this worthy foundation, which every two years holds these auctions in Monaco to help muscular dystrophy, especially amongst young people. I suggested that we craft Victoria Red Rose, which is keeping to the Victoria shape, but also adding hearts as the bracelet of the watch. So you've got a, a heart form forming a bracelet attached to the watch, but set with two heart shapes in rubies, a line of rubies on the bevel of the watch. We crafted this. It's going to be a unique piece. And we've donated this to the only watch and we hope that this will fetch a handsome price during the auction and that the proceeds can help the Monagesque Association fight muscular dystrophy. Well, that's very kind of you and Baxter Strauss to donate the material, the manpower and the hours behind it to help those less fortunate. So let me be one of the first to thank you for everything that you're doing to help those. So let me ask you somewhat of a challenging question and since the history that you have with this company, what would you say is your most memorable achievement in your recent years as CEO, as Baxter Strauss? I think uh, the most difficult decision I had to make was to redirect the direction of the company, uh, moving it uh, away from the diamond, just the diamond industry and creating uh, the possibilities of the platform to launch the the, the brand Baxton Strauss, which currently we're in jewelry, in, in watches, uh, some jewelry, and eventually there will be other brand extensions. So perhaps that will be my biggest achievement so far. 
And what do you see as your priorities for the rest of 2013 and going into 2014? Well, we, we've got 2014 is uh, a very important year for us because uh, we'll be celebrating our 225th birthday and also 200 years continuously in London. But the most important priority I always uh, set myself is that, you know, uh, having a brand like Bax and Strauss, we've got to maintain the quality and maintain the, the creativity and uh, keep the craftsmen uh, challenged to come up with creative pieces for our consumers. Our customers are so discerning, we have to be discerning ourselves and challenge ourselves to be discerning. So keeping that in mind, where do you see Bax and Strauss in, say, five to ten years' time? Um, I would like us to, to maintain our current profile. We don't want to go and become a mass brand. We want to be a brand for uh, what I would call ultra-luxury band, as it, as it were. We don't want to expand our production too much. Some of it is out of our hands because watches we produce are so time consuming and so craftsman required that you know physically we can't grow our production too much so we're happy the way uh, our growth has um, gone so far and we'll just want to maintain a steady growth as we go along for the next five to ten years there will be brand extension our jewelry collection will become more and more uh, important to 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 the offering and who knows what else comes uh, as a new generation comes and joins the business. So where else do you want to expand the Bax and Strauss brand into? Uh, what countries do you want to see your banner fly in? I, you know, I think we're in the principal markets uh, globally at the moment. Uh, there are areas uh, looking in the future, places like Southern, um, South, uh, South uh, America, places like Africa where maybe there will be possibilities for the brand to grow. But uh, we're in Japan, we're in uh, Hong Kong, in China, in uh, Singapore, Malaysia. So we cover the United States. We cover a large part of the world already. So it's consolidating and growing within the markets that we have at the moment. Let's talk about China. China is working on becoming a major player in the luxury market, as you know. With its growing number of high uh, high net worth individuals, how does China fall into your vision for Bax and Strauss? Well, China is very much uh, in everyone's mind, uh, but they are part of a, a world. Uh, one should not be too carried away about the, the the magnitude of the Chinese market. It is a very important market. You have a very discerning consumer there. People who've made a lot of money. They're very astute. Uh, they learn very fast. And they want nice things. But um, we've got to see that in the global perspective. Uh, we've got to make sure that we are not sucked in too much into one particular market. But it offers great opportunities. And as you said earlier, in 2014, Baxter Strauss will celebrate its 225th birthday and its 200th year present in London. First, I would like to congratulate you. And second, what do you have planned for the celebration? We, we are coming out with two very special pieces to celebrate these two special anniversaries. One of them is going to be a very high jewelry watch. We're going to uh, wow our customers with type of colored diamonds we're using and the shape of diamonds we're using on the collection. I can't take you tell you more about it, 
because we're working on it now already for the past 18 months and the results will be uh, shown to the world in January of this year. And the second piece we're coming out is going to be a high horological complication watch tied in with the high jewelry aspect of it. Again, a project that has been worked on for the last 24 months and we'll see the light of day at the beginning of 2014. Well, I can't wait to see it. 2014 is going to come pretty quickly. And ladies and gentlemen, that is going to do it for this episode of Affairs of Affluence. Bart Guest, I would like to thank you very much for being for you being on the show. It was great having you, and we look forward to having you on again. Carlos, thank you very much. And I'd like to thank your listeners for their patience and uh, hearing me out. Thank you very much again. If you want more information on Bax & Strauss, go visit BaxAndStrauss.com. You can follow them via Twitter at Bax underscore Strauss. That's B-A-C-K-E-S underscore S-T-R-A-U-S-S. And you can also find many beautiful images of their masterpieces on Pinterest. Just search for Bax and Strauss London or visit our show notes on affairsofaffluence.com. Thank you for listening to the Affairs of Affluence show. I'm your host, Carlos Cruz, and I hope you had a great time with us this week. Please visit our website, affairsofaffluence.com, and please support us by going to iTunes to subscribe and leave a comment. It will help get the word out about Affairs of Affluence. You can also follow us on Twitter via Inside Affluence. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.